Bloated with Ronnie Scalzo. Some of my favorite podcasts are bloated with ads. It's a jungle out there, the podcasting cash grab. But me, I crave only one lover. I'm going full monogamy with Mackie. Mackie. Mackie's all I want. Mackie's all I need. Mackie. So sorry, underwear company. No thanks, online therapy. Maybe next time, mayonnaise. Mackie's my ride or die. There's only so much of me to give. They got headphones. Mackie. Speakers. Mackie. Microphones and recording gear that's affordable and easy to use. So affordable that even a cheap bastard like me can get down. So easy to use that this monkey right here can start his own podcast. The best news of all, this is the only ad you're going to hear. It's pretty cut and dry. Mackie helps keep the lights on and I help shine a light on Mackie. Not just by mentioning them, but by using their stuff. And by letting my monkey use them. Settle down, monkey. Put that down. With over 30 years in the industry, Mackie's still making gear that sticks to the original vision. Pro-quality gear for real people, real artists, and real engineers. And hell, even fake ones too. Mackie doesn't care. They just want you to try their stuff. And so do I. Find out more and go shopping now at Mackie.com. You're unnatural. You're a freak. Reunions can sometimes be awkward. Times change. People change. From the moment I started this podcast in 2012 till now, so much has changed. Not just in the world, but especially in my world. But throughout the seismic shifts, the poor choices, the twists of fate, the new beginnings, and the inevitable ends, this podcast perseveres. And it all kind of started with Jess Furman. I interviewed Jess in another time, in another place, 117 episodes ago. Back at the bubblegum factory where I once dwelled, Z100 in New York City. It was 10 years ago and I just started this podcast. It was 10 years ago when most folks in radio were still asking, what's a podcast? One decade and 117 episodes later, so much has changed. I'm at the beach in Santa Monica, California, talking to Jess Furman again. It's an 80 degree February day and my skull is roasting. Jess Furman sits beside me in the sand and talks about a music career going strong. Jess isn't selling out arenas. She's not racking up Spotify plays. She's found other avenues to success. She runs Sound Revolver, a successful custom music production house. She was recently named the top industry-shaping executive by Billboard magazine. In that other time, that other place, Jess Furman was a bartender and a self-proclaimed terrible waitress. In 2012, in the East Village, Jess Furman brought me a plate of French fries. Today, she's a musical boss lady in Southern California. So much has changed. But the constant here is Jess Furman, the dynamo. She talks fast. She's got plenty to say. There's not a lot of small talk, and that's okay. I'm here to catch up, but I'm here to cull some wisdom, too. So this reunion on the beach is far from awkward, even if it's a little surreal. And it's just another lesson, hearing about how far Jess has come, the path she took, the struggle she had. When our creative passion's cool, we either give up or we search our soul and find ways to keep stoking the flame. That's what this podcast is, or what it has become 10 years in. It hasn't made me rich, it hasn't made me famous, but in its own interesting and sometimes strange ways, it keeps the fire burning. Jess and I talk about the social impact of her music, writing songs for My Little Pony, and how a brief encounter with Bette Midler put her back on her career path. 
Let's kick things off with the song Pink Lemonade from one of Jess's many band aliases. More on that later. Then my on-the-beach conversation with Jess Furman. Right here on Independent Minded, I didn't bring any sunblock. It's Ronnie Dalzo's amazing podcast. It's Ronnie Dalzo's amazing podcast. He's talking to people who make art and music. He's plugging their projects. He's making them famous. He's helping them out just by making them talk about all the cool shit that they do. We've already had a meal and we've already had some drinks. This is kind of like a This Is Your Life version of the uh, Independent <laughs> Mind podcast. You were episode two. Wow. Ten years ago, yes. um, I interviewed you in New York. Wow. You were a waitress at a bar slash restaurant called Nice Guy, nice Guy Eddie's. Eddie's. And, I and was you're a the bartender. Bartender filling in for the waitress. <laughs> and I, I need to make that distinction because I am the world's worst waitress. You never want me as a waitress. It's just not my calling, but I'm a fantastic bartender. As I told you before, I, I didn't say, wow, this is the worst waitress in the world. Let me ask her to be in my podcast. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You did just fine, but one episode after that, my life changed in a significant way. My house was flooded out by a hurricane. and it's crazy. Yeah, the podcast went on pause for a while while I figured out my life. And the podcast has been on pause again during the pandemic because I didn't want to just have Zoom conversations. I wanted to do exactly what you and I are doing right now, like meet in person, talk shop, shoot the shit, and sit on the beach in sunny California and talk about music and talk about the indie music scene and talk about what's happened to you as an artist in the past decade. And shit, there's been a lot. <laughs> I thought a lot has happened to me and a lot has, but you've kind of been kind of single-minded in your desire to, if you want to call it, make it, but not in the traditional way that most artists 
think they're going to make it. Can you right. give people an idea of the path that you've taken over the past 10 years since you and I first Yeah, talked? of course. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me. I also want to thank you for interviewing me back then. When you have a dream and you don't have access, I don't think that you can understand the level of like you're hearing so many no's that when people take interest in you, maybe that's the fuel that helps you just go an extra couple months, a week or a year. So again, back then, like that level of just interest, hearing my, my music and wanting to interview me, those are the little things that in the beginning really kept me going. So first of all, Thank you very much. My uh, pleasure. That, this is the only reason I wanted to talk again, is so you could be effusive. Of course. And let's give a little background here. Like when I did that interview, I was living in New York. I was working at Z100 in New York for the Elvis Duran show. Right. So it wasn't just some dinky guy with a podcast. It was probably a little bit of a bigger deal to you to have that exposure, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, showing up, seeing the radio station and knowing what you were connected to. But you're also you're a genuine interest, I think. You, most you have when you're starting out is is a dream. And I know that sounds pretty trite, but you have this love for the thing that you do and you know where you want to end up. And anything outside of that is just your best guess at how you get there, right? So, or I know back then, I love music so much and I knew that I wanted to like sacrifice my future for it. And when I say sacrifice my future, like I had a good degree from NYU. Like I had opportunities to do other things and you don't choose to be a struggling artist. You don't choose to be poor if you have other choices. You just are so compelled to do the thing that you love that you do it. Flash forward 10 years, um, so I'll just give you a little rundown of where I am now. I own a fairly successful custom music house called Sound Revolver under the umbrella of Big Noise Music Group. Uh, about three years ago, I was pulled into oversee licensing and started division from scratch based on the successes I had building my own company. And Big Noise Music Group is just a wonderful conglomerate of a few record labels, sub publishing company, my custom house, uh, and I oversee all of licensing, which is TV, film, commercial music. But when I met you, I was doing the artist thing, I was recording, I was touring, and I haven't had to give much of that up. Um, I, I chose to not tour and perform anymore. For me, it, it just didn't feel like the right place for me to be. I just didn't love being away from creating and recording and writing and moving into TV and film music when I moved out to LA enabled me to be really creative but not have to be on the road as much and I'm glad I got it in when I was younger but I still write on a ton of TV shows commercials ads and I'm a very fortunate to be a creative executive who built an entire company around my own art and then was able to hire a lot of creatives around the opportunities I had and you know have a really good mix of being a business-minded human with a creative element of my career. Most artists at any age, or especially when they're younger, like kind of have this idea of what success as a musician is going to be. You know, playing for huge crowds, millions of records sold. Obviously, the industry has changed a lot in the last 10 years, but it seemed like back then, this was kind of what you were hyper-focused on. What was it about the traditional avenues of opening for bigger acts, playing for huge crowds that made you think, hey, I want to go in this direction instead. I always wanted to have impact with my music. Like I started off as a singer songwriter along the folk lines. I did a lot of Take Back the Nights. It was really important to me to speak out for victims of domestic abuse and violence. And I've always felt that I wanted to have or I had a strong social impact attached to my art at any level that I've ever done it. And my way of having impact has always been being a creative 
on that side. And I think what's hard about being an artist is you really are tied to the, the record that you have. So if you have seven songs, if you have 10 songs, if you have 12 songs, if you're touring under multi albums, you're really bound to just perform that night after night after night after night after night. Mm -hmm. And moving into the TV film music side for me has been great because I can have aliases. I have a ton of band aliases that no one would know as me. I can continue to have messages that or create and craft messages that are important to me, but I don't have to put my face on it necessarily. Uh, and that's wonderful and liberating. I can still have the impact that I want without having to kind of hop on a bus or, you know, travel around and not have the same structure in life that I have. You have to figure out how you want to connect to your art and the impact that you have. And as someone who didn't go to music school, I didn't realize I could have the career that I have. But if I knew that coming into it, this is probably where I would have been. When we did talk the first time around, you seem to be like not necessarily sold on staying out in Los Angeles as an artist. And yet here we are <laughs> 10 years later sitting on the beach in Santa Monica. You've never left. You've told right. me that you've had family come out here and you've yes. been kind of a pioneer in a sense. Yes. So where do you stand on that issue now, 10 years later? Are you, is this your forever place? Do you regret not going back to New York? Oof. Obviously you've had a lot of success that maybe you wouldn't have had if you didn't stay and made those connections. So where are you at now with the whole LA thing? I love storytelling and I think that uh, the film and TV worlds this was the place to be. It is the place to be. This is where a lot of, you know, the major studios are. Most of the major studios are. This is where you can really kind of have an entree point into writing for a lot of these spaces. That being said, the live scene is better anywhere else. If you want to get a following as an artist, you want to be anywhere outside of a major city. You want to be a big fish in a small pond. You want people to understand your craft and then you want to build it slowly. You don't want to go to a saturated music capital. I think it depends on, again, what your end goal is. If you're an artist versus being wanting to be a songwriter and write for cuts or produce artists. And if you want to be in the TV and film world, I think that this is the place to be. Do I think I'll be here forever? That's a good question. It's trickier now that my siblings are out here. I couldn't do what I do anywhere else. Uh, that might change. Uh, it's steadily changing with the pandemic and the ability to just kind of not have to be face to face and boots on the ground in Los Angeles. But there were places to have to be to do this. <laughs> Fair, especially when it's 80 and sunny at our And we're on like, the beach looking out at the we're sitting ocean like, yeah. at the end of the world. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's Super Bowl Sunday weekend. This will air after this, obviously, but there's a sailboat in the water. It's been a, a refreshing change of pace for me being out here for this period of time. And I get it. I get the appeal of L.A. just from a personal perspective. But was there any time during this 10-year period where you looked in the mirror and you said, am I supposed to be out here? Was this the right decision? Were there any struggles leading up to this 10-year period where you thought, like, you had made a misstep? <laughs> so I was up for a pretty big record deal when I first moved out here a couple of years into me being in L.A., the deal went south with my attorneys and it was just an, it was an egregious contract and it was right to turn it down. But it was a record deal. Yeah. But traditional my, record deal. It was. But my management dropped me. People dropped me. I knew things were going to go south and I put my entire life in storage. I didn't move back, but I flew back to New York. And this is going to sound like a ridiculous story, but I was on my parents' couch. All my stuff was in storage. I was watching Lifetime movies, just like figuring out. I was like, well, did I make a mistake? What am I doing? And I had met Bette Midler <laughs> at a songwriting party. This sounds Never very far-fetched, but I had met Bette Midler. And at the time, I was super precocious. It was a songwriting event, like a kind of tight-knit group that ASCAP threw. And I saw all these people swarming her. It was all these dudes. There were no women around her. And I walked up and I said, hey, I've heard you're looking for songs. She goes, well, yes, I am. I said, I would love to write for you. I called my mom. I said, Bette Midler's so sweet. She pretended to put my email into her Blackberry. Like she looked at me and smiled and said, what's your email address? Of course. 
I said, how sweet that she would pretend to put my contact information into her phone. So flash forward, and she'll never know this unless this podcast gets blasted everywhere where she hears it. But I'm lying on my couch. I've been dropped by these deals. All my stuff's in storage in Los Angeles. I'm trying to figure out if I want to go back. And I get this email from Bette Midler's assistant saying, hey, Bette met you at a party. She'd love to hear some songs for her record. If you could send me through some stuff. Now, I sent it. This is called the songwriting abyss. I never heard anything back, but in the process of me having to go through all the songs that I had written in the last six to eight year, two years, while I was running the gamut for all these record labels, I had to go through my hard drive. And as I was doing that, I sat up and I, I had something happened to me where I was like, "Why are you sitting here? Why did you banish yourself back to your parents' house for a minute? Look what you've done." with no contacts and no, like, get your ass back to Los Angeles, stop feeling sorry for yourself and do this for nice. real. So that was the moment that I doubted myself and that was also, thank you, Bette Midler. Oh, she's listening. <laughs> Would yeah, still I, love to write for you. I got a surprise for you, Jess. <laughs> Bette Midler's a huge fan of the Totally fine podcast. you didn't like the three songs I sent you, but I do believe if we hung out, I would nail this for you. But Bette Midler, you got me off my couch and back to Los Angeles, and I started a company. I oversee licensing for Magic Music Group. I sit on a bunch of boards. Um, I have the career I've always wanted, and for a moment, that email was the reason why. Bette Midler was the wind beneath your wings. <laughs> she was the <laughs> literal wind beneath my wings. Yes. And she has no idea. She That's has the best no part. idea. How crazy and is that? And she didn't even use any of your songs. She it wasn't didn't about even. that. It Her assistant just, a, just said, Bette met you at a party. Please send us some music. It was and, just about you realized that <laughs> Bette Midler cared about you enough to reach out, and that injected a little bit of confidence in you to, to get that fire going in your belly. Well, again. it was the caring, but it was also me looking and going, Jess, you look at... Look at the people that believe in you that have wanted to work with you. Like you're sitting here thinking your whole world's falling apart because this is your third deal in a row, which of course is like gut punching, yeah. fell apart. But as I was listening, I was like, these people who work with you are so talented and they wouldn't work with you if they didn't think that you could do this. Like time to buy a plane ticket back and make this work. And how long did it take before you got back after that epiphany? A week. Oh, so, okay, you just, sounds like you, based on what I know about you, you just swung right into action. A week, and I didn't even have a place to live. I called a few friends. I got invited into uh, Hollywood Sound, which is right next to Sound Factory in Hollywood. I was the only female that had a production studio and two floors of touring musicians. I called one of my buddies, Jeff Trott, and he probably doesn't know this either, but I was like, I need to get back to LA. And he's like, we have a room open, gave me a great deal. He's like, move into that production suite. We'd love to have you here. I mean, he was with In Tears for Fears, toured with Wire Train, where every Sheryl Crow hit, you pretty much know. And just the fact that they wanted me in that space, you know, you, you do deductive reasoning sometimes when you're an artist and you go, there's a reason why they're like, yes, Jess, come into our space, like work on these records with us. And so I moved back without a place to live, but a studio. And my mom was so funny. I was Skyping her and I was showing her, I took all my recording studio out of storage and I was showing her this room in Hollywood sound that I had. And she goes, that's great. That's great. Where are you sleeping? I'm like, we'll figure that out later. <laughs> I'm like, my studio the is things that are important to mom, set up. Right? But I was like, don't worry, I'm couch hopping, but we will yeah, figure this insurance. out. Yes. <laughs> You've been recognized by Billboard magazine. Yes. Tell everybody what that's all about. Yeah, yeah. So super proud. Um, a lot of people, I think, assume like if you have your own business and you're a music executive that, you know, maybe you had a failed music career or that you gave up on your music career. Um, and I, I had the opposite experience where I was doing so well in my music career that when I built my business, I got offered to be an executive at this company. In 2021, I was listed by Billboard magazine as one of the top 20 industry shaping executives for their pride list. And for me, what was important about that was to be recognized for doing a lot of the social impact work that's really important to me. It's not lost on me that I have certain opportunities based on where I was born, the color of my skin, 
in general, like we're all born with certain things that I think give us an edge sometimes over other people. And I've always tried to figure out how to level that playing field and have the most amount of impact as I can. So I was featured in Billboard magazine the same year that I also landed my first lead composer gig for a spinoff of My Little Pony with Hasbro. Um, I my wrote, Little Pony? Yeah, spinoff. Oh, now spin you got my, my ears just pricked up. <laughs> yeah, I usually don't have time to score these days a full season, but the pandemic had just hit and I tested on it thinking, I'll, I don't know if I'll get it. I tested on it and I won the gig. Over the pandemic, I ended up writing the theme song, co-produced it with a friend, all of the songs in the series, and I was the lead composer and scored every episode for two seasons during the pandemic of a spinoff called Pony Life. So that was the same year I got nominated as that executive as in Billboard, and it was a really cool accomplishment, but it also was a little bit of a mind can I say the F word, but in mind, oh, yeah, this fuck is, for this me. Podcast, okay, great. For me, because I was like, wow, like here I am hitting the pinnacle of some sort of business career, but also like I'm checking like a bucket list for me, which is to have scored as a lead composer on an animated series. Like I was a little kid playing, you know, I, I would watch Fantasia and put it on mute with my little Muppet baby's keyboard. So I think, <laughs> yes, that for me was a pinnacle during the pandemic. I was very fortunate. A lot of people didn't have those experiences. I will say I was isolated and alone and probably a bit of a freak show just from a creative business perspective because I was just by myself all the time. But during that year, yeah, I scored two seasons. I got featured in Billboard magazine and I launched a grant fund as the co-founder with the organization I was on the board of, which is Sona. And we raised over half a million dollars and gave out thousand dollar grants to songwriters who were facing economic hardships during the start of the pandemic. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Paying it forward. I mean, the mindfuck for me is that My Little Pony has a spinoff series. <laughs> I didn't realize the brand was that So big. many. I didn't even realize oh, that My Little even Pony one. was still Little not and a Not even one. There's so many. <laughs> There's actually um, bronies who are men who are very big fans. Bronies? In capital letters. And I'll let that dangle for a minute of any My Little Pony spinoff. And we had to change the rap party for Equestria Girls that I, I wrote on. This is a spinoff series as well because Bronies had hacked into the servers and figured out where we were going to have the rap party, so we had to change it for security reasons. I've also had Bronies do death metal streaming versions of my sweet, cute little um, songs I've written for these really? shows. So, Oh, that'd be something cool to play at the end of the podcast. <laughs> I can, I'll can. i send you a link, and I know they'll be very happy you featured it. I know the theme song, right? It's uh, My Little Pony, My Little Pony, I Can Comb Her Hair. Like, this is, this That's is not that. That's the regular one. Yeah, this but, is uh, I did. Out. My theme was for Pony Life. And it's a sweet life, go? still a little, uh, God, it's a magic, sweet, posh, cool, blank, blank, pony life. But then the bronies who took it over turns it into death metal. So there's a death metal version of my sweet little pony life theme. It's a sweet life, When you talked with me the last time, you had just written a piece for Sesame Street. Yeah. How do you, how does an adult woman? I mean, I'm I have a pretty <laughs> interest in this because I love cartoons, I love Sesame Street, yeah. I love the Muppets, I love toys. You know, how do you get into that mindset to write those sort of songs for an audience that's decades and decades younger than you? So it's funny because every network's a little bit different, and it's funny that you mentioned Sesame Street because that was actually the first time I'd ever written for any type of kids programming ever or TV and film at that level and I've since written for DreamWorks Trolls, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Uh, this is your wheelhouse right here. Yeah, is, I would you say. You excel at this sort of Sure, yes, but the difference between I would say the Sesame Street one that I wrote when you and I had met and the ones I wrote on recently is the recent ones they want contemporary pop with themes that are still age appropriate which I know sounds like it would sound boring but it's actually really fun because you're like well how do I make this sound as cool as the things they hear on the radio but also give kids something to dance to that doesn't subconsciously pummel their brain with an ideology that doesn't suit their development. 
which I know sounds very heady, but I find very rewarding. So make it sound cool and not campy, but at the same time age appropriate. So when I got asked to write the song, it was for Sesame Street's Earth Day, and they wanted to teach kids how to care about resources. And I did a lot of research on the demographic. And what I found was kids at that age don't give flying anything about other people because they haven't developed a sense of empathy yet. So mm. it's not that they don't want to care, it's that they really can't care because of the age they're at, right? So we're trying to do this series where we're trying to teach kids about saving the resources. So I did a lot of research. We came up with a song called The Save Game. And the reason why I came up with that idea was I thought, okay, save light for later when you need it to be bright. Save water for later when you need it. I kind of tried to dig in on the idea that like, this is something you might need later. So don't squander this resource. I think it's a sensibility that you understand, like having the grace and the gratitude to understand as an artist that, sure, I'm creating something, but I'm only as popular as the people that decide that what I have to say is valuable to them. And the minute you forget that, you've lost sight of something very special about what you can do. So I think we, got a helicopter. <laughs> we are on a beach with a helicopter. We're on the beach. We're getting all the beach ambiance. I'm not leaving a red that helicopter, in. so they're not rescuing I'm anybody. leaving that in. I want to create a hypothetical situation. Sure. We're on this beach, except I'm a 25-year-old, long-haired guitar player. <laughs> I got a five-song demo that's, that I think is awesome. What's your advice for a young musician who wants to, quote-unquote, make it nowadays? The industry's changed so much since you and I talked. Yeah. What's the best avenue to success for a young singer-songwriter nowadays? Take a step back and think about what you mean when you say, make it. Do I want to tour? every night for the next 50 years? Do I wanna be making records and mainly be in the studio? Like I think, take a step back from what you think you should be doing and think about what about your art is important to you first. And then think about what you're willing to do to make that art heard. And I think that that will start to craft a path for you that feels like something you can sustain. Because that's the third part, is that if you can't sustain the path that you have, you won't make it because you do need to be able to be your own business and you need to believe in yourself. You can be talented, but you also have to be talented with enough drive that someone else or a team of someone else's get what you're doing and they wanna join you in your journey. You need a team behind you and you get a team when you are able to create disciples and believers because you have a clear vision and you know who you are and then other people will follow. Look at the rules of the game. Don't hate them, they just are and then figure out how you can best them. Do you consider yourself at this point in your career, like at the top of the mountain, you said you've achieved almost everything, if not everything that you've wanted to, you know, is there another plateau for you? What's next for you? At this stage in my life, it's about impact. I wanna make sure that I use the access and the opportunities that I have for the most impact for the things that are important to me. Well, leadership is all about service and it sounds like you're a leader in this community out here in California. It's uh, the 10 year anniversary of the Independent Minded Podcast and I was hoping to come out here and see you just for a social call and just to catch up on the last decade. And it's kind of inspirational to just see how much you've accomplished in the last 10 years. It, Whoever was on episode three and episode four should take some notes because uh, Jess Furman <laughs> did it the right way. Thank uh, you. Thanks for spending the day with me today. We've had a great time here in California. Is this your first beach interview? Yeah, it's my first Mine beach interview. Mine too. <laughs> I congratulate you on all your success. Thank She's you. an advocate. You've heard her stuff on Sesame Street and on the My Little, is it a My Little Pony show? Yeah, it's called Pony Life. It's a spinoff of My Little Pony. And it's on television? Yeah, Discovery. I got something to watch tonight. <laughs> Jess Furman, thanks so much. It's so great to see you again. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. We'll do it again in 10 years. Yes. It's a sweet life, still a little messy magic life, full of surprises, fast 
was the Pony Life theme song by Jess Furman. Earlier in the podcast, we heard Pink Lemonade. Find out more about Jess at JessFurman.com. You can follow her on Instagram at JessFurmanMuse. And a big thanks to Jess for the inspiration and the conversation. And of course, a big old virtual bear hug to you, loyal listener. Listen, subscribe, follow. It's all at BaldFreak.com slash podcast. Stalk me on social media at BaldFreakMusic. And if you Google me, Please note, I am not the Senior Managing Director of FTI Consulting. I'm the other Ron Scalzo, at least for now, until he dies or gets fired. And hey, let's not forget to give a big belly rub to our sponsor. It's Mackie. Come here, Mackie. Good boy. Good sponsor. You want a cookie? Mackie makes everything from microphones to mixers to speakers, and I use them all, voluntarily. Find out what they're making now and making next, all at affordable prices at Mackie.com. Next time on Independent Minded, I invade a Los Angeles recording studio for a roundtable conversation with Paul Rosler, Josie Cotton, and Bruce Duff, the masterminds behind the independent imprint Kitten Robot Records. <laughs>